Thank you, Nisi and Noah, for that extended time of worship, heartfelt worship. Appreciate that. What a blessing. This is the house of the Lord. And uh, the Lord said, my house shall be a house of prayer. And it certainly is a house of praise here this morning. And the Lord likes to keep his house cool, doesn't he? (laughs) Walked in here this morning and you couldn't see out of the windows. It was about 730. Uh, They were fogged up. And whenever Corky and I always comment, because whenever you drive up the church and the windows are fogged, you know, somebody left the AC way down. And it's been working. And sure enough, it was uh, about 65 degrees this morning, like walking into a refrigerator. But that's one way to keep the flames of hell out, isn't it? Just keep it, <laughs> keep it cool so they can't get in. We're in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. And um, when we... We finished the Olivet Discourse, was, which was a lengthy teaching of Christ on the end times. And we hit chapter 26. I hit chapter 26 in my preparation. And I was so excited because that meant we're just three chapters away from finishing the, math, the Gospel of Matthew. Three chapters. And we've been in here a long time. And so I'm kind of wanting to hurry to get to the end. So I'm reading these three chapters and I'm realizing something that's not going to happen. Because Matthew... In 26, 27, 28, he really slows things down. He just slows things down and he goes into even greater detail. And he he probes even deeper into people's hearts. Probes even deeper into really what's happening in the large scheme of things. Um, he, He begins to really tighten up on the contrast between good and evil. Uh, his gospel reveals the battle that's going on between the kingdom of heaven and this world. And it's a battle between good and evil that goes right down the center of this universe and really goes right down the center of every human heart. And we see this great contrast here in these last three chapters. So I was in a hurry, excited to get to the end. I thought I can do this in X amount of sermons and, and actually been kind of pushing to do that. And, and scripture just won't let me. I am going to take quite a chunk out this morning, though, um, as my last attempt to make some ground towards the end. And after that, you'll see that he just he just probes like um, also in these verses and actually these final chapters where I'm going to emphasize is what Jesus says, the words of Jesus. Not that we haven't been doing that all along, but there's very important things that are happening in history People are making important decisions, um, right and wrong. But what's most important to me is what Jesus has to say about those, because we can't always figure them out on our own. And I think you'll see that this morning. But chapter 26 is 75 verses in itself. And then chapter 27, he lays another 65 verses at our feet. And then chapter 28 is a little shorter. But. Things are beginning to tighten up. Choices have to be made. Jesus is in his final hours. What are you going to do? These these disciples in the world at this time is really faced with this important question. Okay, Jesus, the son of God, has come. He has performed miracles. He has taught like no man has ever taught. He has painted this picture of another world that exists and he's proven it. And he has overcome evil. He has done what no man has ever been able to do. What are you going to do with Jesus? 
What are you going to do with him? What kind of decisions are you going to make? And then even when you've decided to follow him and you've thrown all your eggs in one basket and you say, yes, you're my Lord, you're my master. And then you fail him. Then what does your life look like? And that all of that is in these final chapters. The scholars call it these these verses, Matthew's passion. Of course, it's the passion of Christ. So we're going to begin by looking at. 29 verses, want to look at the anointing, um, the betrayal, and then the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper. And I've put a beyond in front of these because not only are they significant when they happen, but they also are so significant that they point to events beyond. It's just very rich um, scripture right here. So let's look at the first 13 verses. Beyond oil. The anointing. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, and that was the Olivet Discourse on the end times, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the son of man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. That's answer to prophecy right now. This is being told in memory of her. She's right in the gospel. And every time you talk about Jesus... Sooner or later, you're going to come about, come and and be confronted with this woman's actions. The first five verses, I don't have little to say upon because we've been seeing this coming the whole time. It's been building and building. The leaders of Israel become more and more threatened as Jesus rises in popularity. And they go to not liking him. Uh, They go from not liking him to A place of where they want to murder him. There's no question about it now. He's a threat to their power. He's a threat to their popularity. And so three groups of people, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Zealots that pretty much don't agree on anything. Finally agree on something. And that is this guy has got to go. He's a threat to all of us. He's a threat to our future. He's a threat to our people. And so they are. Plotting to kill him. They've already made this decision. Now it's just a matter of how do we do this? The challenge is that they are hypocrites and they like to look good. 
to how do you kill somebody and still look good at the same time? They've got to figure out how can we do this? We don't want this coming back at us. And that's the predicament of every hypocrite where it's important to look good on the outside and the surface. We have to keep people away from probing into what's really in our heart. And that was their job and their task. And we, we, there's a little bit of hypocrite in all of us, is there not? We love to look good and come on Sunday church and look like we've been in so close to God all week. Nobody has any idea where my thought life has been. Nobody has any idea what kind of sins we may be harboring, why we want to be good on the outside and Christians as well. It's the same problem, just a higher magnitude here. And of course, we know that they will fulfill and we know how they will fulfill the lust of their heart. So here's Jesus. He's just talked about the end times. And now we find him in Bethany in the house of Simon the leopard. And we were reminded throughout the Gospels that Jesus Rather than shunning people that most of the world shuns, he embraces. This is Simon the leopard. I don't know if he's been cleansed and this is just they still call him Simon the leopard or um, he still has leprosy. But Jesus is going to reach out to him because those that have been put on the outcast, Jesus uh, created those people that we often don't want to invest in and spend time with. And so he is in this house. And he is dining with this guy that was probably lonely and certainly appreciative of Jesus's actions. So why he is visiting this person, he is anointed by oil or with oil. And I call it beyond oil because Jesus goes into the significance of it. I like this passage because this strange things ha happens and then the disciples question it and you kind of want to know, well, wait a minute, what's going on here? And then Jesus tells us what's going on, which I'm so grateful for. I, I wish he was here in physical form to answer all my questions about life in scripture. But right here he is and he answers this question. A woman pours very, very expensive oil on Jesus while he's reclined at the table. He lets her do it. The disciples are indignant. Some gospels go into greater detail about who and what and how. And I'm going to stay away from those and focus in on what Matthew had to say. And they are seeing this and they, 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 they have dollar signs going on in their head. And they think this is a, a, a tremendous waste. Because they have been given a mission. They have been taught in scripture that they are to give to the poor. And cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. As they watch the drops of oil go on Jesus. They're thinking of all the people that are in need. All of the meals that the hungry could eat. All of the clothes that could help people that are freezing in the winter time. And all of the, the care that could have been accomplished through just half of what was poured out on this on Jesus during this time. So they are struggling with this decision that this woman has made in anointing Jesus. This is very costly perfume, by the way. Scholars estimate it at about 50,000 U.S. dollars. And you think there's no way that anybody would pay that much for oil or perfumes. It was a perfumed oil. I got curious I went online and today there's a perfume called Clive Christian number one. Of course, it's got to be number one. Not just number one, but it's Imperial 
majesty, not just imperial, but majestic perfume, valued at $12,721.89 per ounce. That's a lot of money. And I hope you smell good. You're going to spend that much on that top of the line stuff. And if somebody came in here with their their little ounce vial and said, this is my $13,000 perfume. That's like who would pay that much or who would even have that much? They must really like it. It must be important. It's very valuable. So how this person got this kind of value We don't know this oil, but you can imagine that it was probably one of the most valuable things that they owned. So this woman decides as Jesus or she is in the presence of Jesus, there's something that happens in her. Um, She loves him. She's devoted to him. She has this urge, this impulse, this this emotion. Her mind is informing her her impulse and her emotions, and she wants to lavish him. She wants to show him how much she loves him and how much, how uh, worth, how much he is worth to her. And so she takes the most valuable thing she knows of that she has, that she owns, and she goes to him and pours it on him, just absolutely lavishes him. That's how she wants to worship him. And on the other hand, now she's a worshiper, she's a disciple of Christ. On the other hand, you have the close-knit disciples that have been following Jesus. And they are indignant at this. And they are thinking this is a waste of money. And Scripture certainly says very plainly that we as believers are to be the hands and feet of Christ and to take care of the poor and the hungry and those that simply need the downcast. And Jesus is in a downcast home. And that's plainly written in Scripture. You don't find in Scripture anywhere that we are supposed to anoint Jesus with, say, $50,000 worth of oil. So what do we do with this tension that this gospel has caused us, this story? Who's right here? Well, we don't have to wonder because Jesus calls it. And he tells us who is right. Or who isn't wrong, depending on how you want to look at it. He says, the woman, what she does... Or what she has done is a good thing. I love my ESV. It says beautiful. Other versions say beautiful. Some says good. It's the Greek word kalos. And it means good. It has a moral content to it. But it also means befitting. It's not just good. It's like goodness just at the right time. So Jesus clarifies this. And he says, no, not the disciples are wrong and they're wanting to to care for the poor. But what she did was uh, more right. It was more befitting. And he gives the answer. It's because you'll always have the poor with you. There will always be opportunities to give to the poor. And by the way, some of the tension here is between between what's best as a worshiper is because both of these things please God. And when you give to the poor and the needy, that is a grand act of worship. And it's not just meeting a physical need, a practical need. When we give, when we give our tithes or when we we bring a meal to a neighbor that's not feeling well, 
It is a spiritual thing that is done with the intent of honoring God and saying, God, I love you. And you say, I'm your hands and feet and you love this individual. And so I'm, I'm going to want you to use me as an instrument to love this individual. But it's totally spiritual. It's totally good. And it's a way to tell God how much he's worth to you. You're worth so much to me that I'm going to do this. I'm going to give what I have earned on my own sacrificially, give it voluntarily to this person to help them along. It's a beautiful act of worship. What has happened here is it's the same kind of thing. It's a way to show Jesus his worth to you. So her means of worship was to take something valuable at the time because she is in his presence. And she worships by saying, this is how much you're worth to me. So really, they're not in contrast. It's just a matter of time and context here. What she did, Jesus, he says, that's beautiful. She gets it in this in this. She's thinking of the moment. They're thinking of the future and pinching pennies. There's a need for that. But right now, in this moment, what she did was awesome. That that impulse, that emotion, that desire. And there are times, of course, kind of extraordinarily to lavish upon Jesus. There's times to pinch pennies. There's times to watch the budget. And then there's times to just show him in different ways how much he is worth to us. And go all out. It's a beautiful story that is included in the Gospels. For very, very good reason, because it's that kind of devotion. Jesus said is beautiful to me. You just give it all. And the timing is in is is impeccable as well, because Jesus applies it to an anointing for his burial. He knows what's coming and he's been warning his disciples and they kind of resisting it, fighting it. They don't quite understand the significance But he knows that he's going to the grave. And he sees this as an anointing for the progress of redemption that is to come with his sacrificial death. So there's a stark example of light. A big example of a worshiper of Christ and what it looks like when you just give him him your all. And he is worth everything to you, the pearl of great price. Now we turn to a stark contrast. So you've seen goodness maybe at its best or faith at its best. Now we're going to look at another disciple briefly. And rather than saying, this is how much you're worth to me in giving your all, this disciple is actually saying, this is how much you're worth to me, pretty much nothing. Matter of fact, I'd rather have 30 pieces of silver than to have anything to do with you anymore. And of course, that is Judas. I like our Monday Thursday services. Um, they are purposely visual. So we have um, visual effects of the table kind of laid out like maybe what the Last Supper was like with the 12 disciples. So there's 12 chairs and, you know, you've been there. You come up and you take communion. One of the chairs, Dwight drapes in black. And that represents, oh, and in front of it is a little satchel with not real silver. I don't even know what's in it. But it's to depict, of course, this is Judas and the the cloth, the black cloth represents the heart of betrayal and sin and darkness because that's what he followed. 
It's a very special time. I love what that represents. It has a good effect on our hearts. But let's read verses 14 through 25. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Take note, by the way, that Judas sought them out. They didn't come to Judas and say, hey, would you snitch on this guy, Jesus? I'll give you this for it. He sought them out. You see the transition that's taken place in Judas's mind. Jesus is now a means to an end. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. And the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him that man, for that man, if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Many scholars believe that Judas was a zealot, and that's um, a group among the Jews that really, they all hated the Romans for the most part, but these People wanted to uh, have an uprising. They're always looking for more weapons, looking for more people for their cause, trying to feed and fuel the hatred against the Romans so they can rise up and conquer them and be free from that kind of bondage. And so they're looking for recruits. They're also looking for leaders that are popular, that can do things that people will follow. The thought is that Judas thought perhaps Jesus doing all these miracles, all these people are following him. He must be the guy. He would be a great leader to lead us in battle, only to find out that he's not about violence. Only to find out as he begins to um, process the teachings of Christ, that that's not the kind of deliverance that he came to perform. It's not what he's leading. He's not about uprisings, just the opposite. So they think that he was disheartened. He had he no longer whatever the case is, he no longer has a use for Jesus. Jesus was a commodity. Uh, he was a means to an end. He thought that Jesus could bring him to this place. We'll talk more about this later to this place. But because Jesus didn't, he sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. Judas plays a part, a big part in the death of Christ, striking this deal to point Jesus out with a very personable greeting of a kiss, no less. He's lost respect. He has no regard for him. They are at this table 
at what we know of as the Last Supper. And Jesus throws this out. One of you will betray me. Could you imagine if Jesus was here right now amongst you and he just peered out and said, one of you will betray me. What would come to your mind? I have a guilty conscience. I carry it with me whether I'm guilty or not. From a bad history of being guilty most of the time. And so, you know, I see blue lights behind me. I'm like, oh, no, I'm going to get a ticket. Even when I'm going the speed limit. So what would the effect be? I mean, this is this is throwing something out there. One of you, and this is an intimate setting, will betray me. I mean, how could that be? The people that don't want to follow Jesus, they're they're long gone, right? They realize he's not just a free meal ticket. This is serious stuff. A lot of sacrifices have to be made. Who is he speaking to? And they squirm. And they begin it one by one, it says. Is it I? Now, I actually like that because I think that's a sign that Jesus' teaching actually has gotten through. Because he's been teaching them all along about the sinful heart of man and the sinful nature. And you can't trust your heart. Now, there's good in it because we were created in the image of God, but we're also fallen and therefore there's evil. And so there's this constant struggle. We need a lot of help with our hearts. I think the Pharisees, if they were at the Last Supper, they'd have been like, well, I know it's not me, so it must be one of you. But the disciples are like, hmm. One thing I know about Jesus is he never gets anything wrong. And if he says somebody's going to betray him out of this group... Somebody's going to betray him. Can I trust my own heart? What's to become? Is it me? I actually think that's a healthy sign that the teachings of Christ are getting through to us. We are only to trust him. And any good we do is by the grace of God. The beautiful thing about Christianity, I think, is that it actually, with its truths, exposes our hearts We need to know what's in here in order to know what kind of things we're facing in life and what our tendencies might be in these big battles. I recently read an article uh, from Breakpoint called What We're Missing About the Mass Shootings, of course, following the shootings in Texas and Ohio just a few weeks ago. And it says, young men are in crises And all the rhetoric, while some is helpful, does not address the young men themselves or the source of their impulses. Will gun control control violent impulses? A study conducted on the U.S.'s 27 deadliest shootings found that nearly all shooters did not have a father growing up. The article goes on to say, our society largely fails to cultivate young men, to teach them about their fallen natures, and to morally form them to choose love over hate and courage over violence. Thus, the epidemics of addiction and aimlessness and depression and irresponsibility and perversion and selfishness, victimhood, low expectations continue until we face the fact that the root of our problem lies here. The fruit will continue to be bitter. 
Unless we rebuild the institutions of civil society that cultivate young men, there is no way forward. Now, I love that little excerpt because it it is true and it helps us understand what's behind the impulses, what's behind there are there's always something behind whatever our culture's up to, whatever people are up to there. We are a people that are driven by something. So what they ask the question, well, what could they possibly be driven by? And we have to know the condition of our heart. Christianity teaches us that. So evil should not surprise us. And if we're all honest with ourselves, though, to different degrees, we struggle with same things. And we have to make the same kind of choices Judas had to make. Man, I just want to sell this guy out. Should I do it or not? We are faced with the same kind of things. Choices between good and evil. Should I do it or not? Scripture teaches us the difference between right and wrong, what's right and what's wrong. So this article says in order to even have a foundation, not just to speak rhetoric, but to understand what's behind it all, we need to get back to biblical roots, which, of course, would be teachings like this in Matthew's passions. We face the consequences. So here are the disciples and they're squirming a little bit. Hmm. Is my heart more wicked than I thought it was? Am I the one? Because right now, maybe I don't feel like it at all, but what's going to happen tomorrow or the next day? Jesus never says anything that isn't true. Of course, we already know it's Judas. Right now, he's just acting. He's posing like he's still one of the guys and he's not. He's in it for the money at this point. So he says, is it I, Rabbi? And Jesus says, yes. Interesting comment by Jesus that we all play our part in the death of Christ. Jesus says that it would have been better for you not to have been born. And we know that this this is all part of the plan, providential um, redemption, but doesn't make it any less heinous. Just because we're a part of the plan of redemption, we might be a part that shows how much we need redemption. We might be the part that where God gets the glory through giving wrath and justice to individuals that did not trust in the son that he sent. So just because we're all a part of it doesn't mean we're on the right side of it. Judas is not on the right side of it. But he shows us our need. And I think the other disciples in questioning themselves show us our need. What is in my heart? So yours, Jesus says, is a betrayal beyond betrayal. I mean, there's betrayals, but what you do is beyond. And we'll look at more of that as it comes. And then lastly, the Last Supper. Verse 26, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. We call this the Last Supper. 
And it's really only the Last Supper for Jesus, or it's the Last Passover Supper, because Jesus changes it. But in a sense, it's really the First Supper. It's the First Supper of many, many, many suppers, because this is the institution of what we um, call Holy Communion. This is the institution of what we still practice thousands of years later after this historical event. We still break bread. We still drink the wine in remembrance of Christ. So in a sense, it's the first of many. And we do that in obedience to him. What does this meal mean? The fact that Jesus chooses the Passover as a springboard to launch into the New Testament or the New Times or the New Covenant is very significant because it teaches that Jesus's death is absolutely central to the Christian faith. It's central to everything that we know, everything that we believe and where we will spend eternity, eternity. So it puts it on the death of Christ. And he says, and and with in addition to other scriptures that support it, do this in remembrance of me. And it's to be practiced perpetually until he comes back. Now, he has not instituted any other great event. He doesn't even institute a Easter like we do. Like a resurrection day, the day that I resurrected. I rose from the dead on this day and I want you to bury yourself in the sand and come up out of it like you're alive in remembrance of me. And you just keep doing that or whatever it is. Or the miracles. So he did many grand things, but it is his death that is to be central. It's his death that we always have to come back to as Christians to really understand who we're worshiping. And why we worship him. This is a Passover meal. It started as a Passover meal. And uh, you will remember the Passover was instituted in Exodus. When the Israelites were still in slavery and bondage to the Egyptians. It was a grueling life. God decides it's time to set you free so you can worship me. And it's also time to execute judgment on your oppressors. The Egyptians. And so he institutes the Passover and he gives them instructions on what to do. They were to make bread and eat it in haste, unleavened bread, to symbolize the affliction and getting out of there as fast as you can, making haste. So suffering and, and haste, it's uneasiness. And then they were instructed to take a lamb. And I won't go into all the details, but there's very specific ways the lamb was to be sacrificed the very specific ways they were to partake of, they were to cook it and to eat it in a certain way, all very symbolic. But most importantly, they were to save that lamb's blood and they were to spread it or smear it onto the doorposts of their homes. Because God said, judgment time has come. And the only way you can be spared from the judgment is by having the blood of the lamb over your household. And if you are under that, you will be spared from the judgment of God. Judgment night came, we know, in the Old Testament. And there were many that lost their lives. God's people were spared. 
Now, Jesus breaks protocol. By the way, in the, in the Passover, it wasn't... And the Jews, of course, practiced the Passover as a remembrance of the Exodus, as a remembrance of the redemption. When they, when they share this meal together, they don't just throw the food on the table and it's a free-for-all. You just come up and eat and then you go on your way. It's officiated. It's explained, just like we do here. We don't just put the elements on a table with a big old jug and individual cups and say, all right, this is the Lord's Supper. Come up and partake of it. Each time it's explained, this is the bread, the body of Christ. This is the wine, the blood of Christ. So every time it's officiated by these guys. And Jesus is the officiator of the Passover. So he's explaining the significance of all the things that go into it. And he breaks protocol and he says, this is my body, the bread, the bread of haste, the bread of affliction. It's my body and it's broken for you. And he takes the Exodus and the Passover a whole new direction. And then he says, this is my blood. It's the blood of the covenant. All the promises of the covenant are found right here. And you have to drink it. You have to eat it in order to be a part of me. You have to drink it in order to be a part of me and what I'm doing. Christianity isn't stagnant. It's not a one-time thing. It's a constant thing. You, you keep coming. You keep giving. You keep partaking. You keep drinking. You want more and more of Christ. So you're giving and you're taking. You're, you're denying yourself so that you can get more of Christ in. It's not a stagnant thing at all. It's a continuous thing. And then he signifies or, or officiates the idea of the Passover. Now, it's not redemption from a people group. It's not political. It's not social. It's, it's redemption. You are exiting sin and death. Because that's what Christ redeems us from. By his death. And it also symbolizes a substitutionary death. I am the lamb. I am the one that will die in your place. So that you will not suffer the wrath of God. That by the way you deserve. I know I say this on again referring to our Monday Thursday services. But the Jews had the blood on their door. Why? Because they're just as guilty as the Egyptians. He didn't just say, look, y'all get a free pass. I'm going to judge the Egyptians. When the angel of death comes and looks for unrighteousness and looks for things that are displeasing to God. He finds them in his own people. They're idols in their hearts. And so they have to be covered under the lamb. Under the blood. And so Jesus is saying, I am that lamb. I will die. For you. That's the substitutionary aspect of Christianity in your place. And a lot of times today, all we want to talk about is love and the love of Christ. And certainly that was an act of love, but it wasn't just an act of love. It was an act of absolute necessity. He's not just saying, oh, I'm going to think of a wonderful way I can show you I love you. I'm going to die for you. He had to die for us. He was the only acceptable sacrifice. He had to die in our place. So it's not just love. It's a substitutionary act. Without the death of Christ, all mankind would face the wrath of God. But because Jesus is the lamb, 
When we run to Him or we get up under the blood, we trust in Him, we believe in Him, we obey what His Word says, we bring ourselves up under it, we're safe from the wrath of God. Reminds me, not so long ago, Jesus entered Jerusalem as a hero, as a king, and He looked at him and He, and he, and he had such compassion and He just said, Oh, Israel, Jerusalem, I just wanted to take you under my wing. You, you, everybody I sent to you, you killed. All my prophets, all my servants. I just wanted to take you up under and when you come, that's what happens when you come under the blood of Christ. Jesus is, the, the gospel is a welcome. Come, trust in me. Now there's the wrath that you will suffer. And then there's the salvation, the redemption that I have earned for you. Come unto me, I'll take you under my wing. You'll be safe. And it's the only place you'll be safe. All of this, the significance of the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper. We get to... Be reminded of it, our church, once a month. It's a beautiful, wonderful thing. Jesus is the bread. Jesus is the cup. Our salvation is based on Him. His commitment to us. We talked a little bit about this this morning in Sunday school about religion is my commitment to this God or my willingness to do this for you and I'm going to do this work and I got, I'm committed to do this. Christianity says, God says, no, I'm committed to you. Your, the security of your salvation doesn't depend on the, uh, the, uh, your ability to make and keep commitments. Your ability to do it depends on my ability to keep a commitment. That's where the assurance of salvation. Doesn't that just want, help you breathe a sigh of relief? Wow, because I thought I had to do this and this and this. And if I let up, I might miss out or barely squeak in. Christianity, this covenant is God's commitment to you. I have secured your eternity. Come up under the sacrificial atoning blood that I spread or Spilled for you. And you will be with me forever. Trust and faith. Covenant promise. So, in conclusion, we see just in these uh, this portion of this long chapter, we see a, a woman that has given her all as a way of worship. We see a guy who is taking from Jesus. He's a means to an end. He's a consumer. And then we see Jesus institute the Lord's Supper by explaining the significance of the bread and the body and the blood and the wine. And only those that come to Him and under Him will escape the wrath of God and live for the glory of God. So as we close, we just want to think about who am I? Where is my heart? What is the focus of my life? And who is central? May God bless the preaching of His Word.